Wonderful. All right. If you have your Bible with you this morning and would like to follow along, we're going to be in a couple of different places. So I'm going to give you the three main places to put a finger or a bookmark this morning. The first is going to be Luke chapter 21. All right, we'll be in Luke chapter 21 to begin. Then we're going to go back in our Bibles quite a ways into Deuteronomy chapter 12. Deuteronomy chapter 12. And then we're going to end this morning in Malachi chapter 3. Now, if you can find Malachi... Uh, you win 10,000 bonus points, and so uh, good for you. That's one of the minor prophets, and I think they just call them minor because they're so short. So uh, you can get into Malachi chapter 3 uh, as well. So Luke 21, uh, Deuteronomy 12, and then Malachi chapter 3. Now, a couple of summers ago, I had a wonderful chance to go down to a resort in Florida with my family, and the resort was a really neat place and had a pool that was five to six times bigger than this space that we're in this morning. It was a massive, massive retreat center pools, and, and it had a kitty thing and everything like that. You could, you could be in a spot in this pool with your family and, and not come near any other families. It was just a really neat place. Well, my kids were relatively young, and so when we got to anything other than the kitty area of the pool, it was like, what do we do? So as any good parents, we wanted our kids to jump off the side of the pool into our arms, right? Jump! Jump! You ever been there? Jump! Come on! And of course, kids are trepidatious and mine are scaredy cats to the extreme because of who I am. But anyhow, they, they, are, they are standing at the edge of the pool and, and we must have looked like crazy parents because at least for 20 minutes, Gina and I are both screaming, Jump! Come on! Jump! And, and, and none of them are jumping. Why? Because they're, they're afraid of drowning, right? But eventually, one by one, the, the most adventurous, and the, then the second most adventurous, and then the, the king or queen scaredy cat went third. And, and, and in essence, the kids started jumping into our arms and jumping into the pool, and the water's going everywhere, and they're laughing. Why do we want to do that? Because we knew that they would have fun jumping into the pool. Number two, there is something so cool about being a parent and having your kids trust you with their lives, right? You're going to jump into this pool where you cannot touch the bottom, and you are going to trust that I am going to catch you. There is something so satisfying as a parent when your kids trust you. Now, the neat thing about that for our kids was when they learned to trust us, they had a ball. They had a really great time. They just weren't sitting there with their toes flittering in and out of the water. They truly enjoyed themselves to the extreme. And in fact, every day when we would leave the pool, it would be like our arms are going to fall off now because they would jump, and then they'd get out, and they'd jump, and then they'd get out, and then they'd jump. And there was only two of us and three of them at the time, so you do the math. Sometimes they jumped and we weren't quite there, all right, which really is trust because then you bring them up and they're gulping water. I'm like, I love you. I didn't mean that. Anyhow, so... But there's something powerful about parents enjoying the trust of their children and children trusting that they can trust their parents. We've embarked upon a little mini-series called Agents of the Treasury, and we started last week, and we talked about we as human beings are agents, we as Christians are agents of God's treasury. God is loading up our backs and sending us out, if you will, from his treasury full of riches. And he wants us to trust him with what he does with those riches. And he wants us to trust that we can give in to what he tells us to give in to and that he'll continue to take care of us. Last week, we talked about the first step of being an agent of God's treasury is to break the spirit of mine. 
to break the spirit of mine, and mine has a name. Its name is Mammon. Now, if you want to catch that message to sort of get the feel for what we're doing here, I would really encourage you to go to vlchurch.com and and go under Grow and grab that message from last week because it sets the stage for what we're going to be talking about today. Because today we're going to talk about after breaking the spirit of mine, it's time to embrace the spirit of trust. A moment in the Bible that really upsets me with the trust that's shown is in Luke chapter 21. In fact, this passage of scripture that I'm about to read to you, four verses, is one of the passages of scripture that has over over time made me the angriest when I read scripture. I just look at this and think, "This this is stupid. I'm mad at you, God. I don't like this. But we're going to try to get to the bottom of Luke chapter 21 today by maybe looking at some other scriptures. So are you in Luke chapter 21? I want to read this to you and talk about breaking or embracing the spirit of trust. Jesus was in Jerusalem, and he was sitting in the temple courts with his disciples. He was teaching, and he stops to observe something. And that's where we're going to pick up in Luke chapter 21. Jesus looked up, and he saw rich people putting their gifts into the treasury He also saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. He said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in all she had to live on, end quote. I am horrified by that story. I don't like that story at all. Because in my mind, if Jesus was as sensible as me, he would have said, stop that woman. What is she doing? She cannot be giving everything she has to live on to the temple treasury to God's house. That is absolutely absurd. Stop that woman. Now, we don't know how we know that this, we don't know how Jesus knew that this was a widow. We we don't know. We're not quite sure. He might have been using his Jesus powers at this moment, right? And then that later, later is, is conveyed to his disciples. But if he's using his Jesus powers, and if he knows that that's all that lady has to, has to live on, he should have said, stop. Shouldn't he have? Stop, woman. No. Don't do that. God's going to be able to do his work without your two copper coins. Now, I know, I know we're not all historians today, but back in the day, gold was big time. Silver was okay. Copper, ugh, not much. Copper's not going to get the temple treasury all that far, but it might produce for her some bread, some, some, some sustenance, a place to stay. And he doesn't stop her. This bugs me immensely. He should have told her to stop. It reminds me of a time that I was sitting in seminary and we were talking about the abuses of the church and, and, and the churches that are in it for money and the pastors that are in it for money. And, and a woman was going crazy. She was so angry because her parents kept sending away to a TV ministry and buying prayer cloths. Because these people were going to pray over the cloths and then you sent them forty nine ninety five for your prayer cloth so your prayers can get answered. Shouldn't Jesus have, have, have recognized that, hold on a minute, these, these Pharisees, these Sadducees, these leaders of the temple, they're bad dudes. They're, 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 they don't even agree with my ministry, and I'm the son of God, for heaven's sakes. They don't need this widow's two copper coins. They, they, these fat cats in Jerusalem certainly don't need that, but he doesn't stop her. This bugs me immensely. But if I know anything about Jesus, it is this. I know he wouldn't have done her wrong. 
I know Jesus would not have done this woman wrong, yet he does not stop her. She had every excuse not to give to the treasury. She had every excuse not to bring her offering. She was a widow at a time in history where it was not okay to be a widow. There was no social security. There there, there was no benevolence committee at the church, if you will. And in many cases, there was no opportunity for advancement. She couldn't just go out and get a job to replace those copper coins. If anybody had a reason to tell God, God, I cannot give, it would have been her. And Jesus, knowing the corruption that was taking place in the temple, should have said, stop. But he didn't. So where did this come from? Why would this woman be so invested in giving to the temple that, that, that she would give what's left to her in life. And why doesn't Jesus stop her? We need to explore the Bible a little bit this morning to try to figure out the answers to these questions. So turn over with me to Deuteronomy chapter 12. We're going to talk about the moment that this was instituted. In the book of Exodus, when the people were coming out of Israel, we're talking about the Hebrew children who had been, sl- or Egypt, forgive me, the Hebrew children who had been slaves in Egypt, they came out, in the Exodus, and God set up these, this, this system, a system of sacrifices, a system of tithes, a system of offerings, a system by which the firstborn or the first fruits of your fields, they were all given to God. But there's a moment where God says, I want you to bring those tithes, those offerings, those sacrifices to the place where I will cause my name to dwell. And that's where we're going to start this morning and try to figure out if we can solve this mystery. Deuteronomy 12, 5 and following. But you, Israelites, people of God, shall seek the place that the Lord, your God, will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contributions that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, and all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Now, let's go back for just a minute and see all the things incumbent upon the Israelites to bring before the Lord. Burnt offerings, sacrifices, tithes, contributions, vow offerings, free will offerings, and firsts. If God had a church today, no one would go to it. I mean, because apparently you can get to the seventh offering before things start getting hairy, right? There are seven different things that God had had placed on his people in the Old Testament by which they were to give, by which they were to wrap up their lives around the life of God, and by which to say we belong to God. If God had a church today, no one would go to it. Is God greedy? What's going on here? Just a few years ago, my wife and I decided on, on, on a Sunday night that we would go to a local church with a pretty well-known pastor. If I said the pastor's name, you all would recognize, or most of you would. And so we decided that we were going to go to the Sunday night service, and we went to the Sunday night service, and we sat down because we just wanted to see what was going on there. And when they got to the third offering, we left. We were like, we are out. We don't know about about this message. We don't know about the music. We don't know about any of this. But obviously something's wrong at this church. They got three offerings. And and there's some greed or something going on here that we're not about. We are out of here. Okay? 
This would not even be scratching the surface if we were the ancient Israelites. That's what I'm trying to convey to you this morning. But what's really going on here is God is setting up a system by which their lives are inexorably linked to God. They are so compounded, if you will, with God's life that every aspect of your life is wrapped up in God's life. The burnt offering was to say, God, you're God, and, and we don't have any right to be in a relationship with you, but, but we're just going to recognize that. The other offerings, well, there were, there were many of them that we could go into this morning. The tithe was to take the first tenth of the increase and give it to God. The contributions were offerings on top of the tithes. The vow offerings was an offering made expecting God's goodness to be poured out in your life. The free will offering was an opportunity for you to give to God over and above all of that just to say, God, I love you. And finally, in an agrarian society where you're counting on your crops and you're counting on your herds, God said, the firstborn of all your flocks belong to me. Sacrifice them. That's a lot. That's a lot of ways to wrap your life around God's life. That's a lot of ways to make sure that every time something goes right in your life, you're saying, God, I bless you. God, I thank you. God, I give it to you. Now, the beautiful thing for us today is so many of these sacrifices and offerings are not incumbent upon us. The sacrificial system has been completed. Notice I did not say abolished. The sacrificial system has been completed, and it was completed in the person of Jesus Christ. We don't have to take our burnt offerings today. We don't have to make sin and guilt offerings today. We don't even have to take our fellowship offerings today to the Lord, all of which would, which would have required a sacrifice. In essence, Jesus took care of those on the cross. We are in full and free relationship to God, and we don't make sacrifices to recognize that we don't deserve it any longer. The sacrifice that said you don't deserve it was made on the cross. And that's the beautiful thing. So much of this is not incumbent upon us anymore because Jesus has completed the sacrificial system. But still there's this concept that, that, that we can't get away from, that we can't separate from, that we should not separate from, which is to be the people of God is to be sure that every part of our lives is wrapped around the life of God. Every part of who we are, every aspect of what we do should be full of, of, of recognition of the goodness of God and who he is. And, and that's why we give towards God's work. And there was a practical aspect to these things, were there not? A very practical aspect to these offerings that were given, these tithes that were given. Obviously, God has a, a priesthood, and he's got a temple, and he's got a tabernacle by which these offerings make it possible. But it's not the center of that. It's not the reason why God institutes these things. Last week we discussed towards the end of, our, uh, end of the message, or the end of our time together, that the reason that God instituted giving was for us to break free from the spirit of mine. But there's more to it today, and I, I want to I get back into the why for a moment. Why does God institute so much among his people, and why does God look at his people and say, Give towards what I'm doing in the world. Well, most of it's right here in Deuteronomy. It's either on the page that you're on or it's on the next page. The next page, if you were to turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 23, there is a rehearsal of all of these different tithes, offerings, and sacrifices that people can make. And in Deuteronomy 14, 23, we are told that we are to make offerings unto the Lord so that we may learn to fear the Lord our God always. It's going to come up on the screen as F-O-T-L, fear of the Lord. 
So next time you're hanging out in Bible study and you're like, F-O-T-L, you're like, fear the Lord. Hashtag F-O-T-L. I'm waiting for it, right? Very exciting. Now we're told in Scripture that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of? You're even watching me. I did this with my ears and you said something. That's awesome. You're with me so far. Great. See where we're at in 10 minutes. Anyhow, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, we talked last week about God instituting giving to break the spirit of mind because the spirit of mind is ultimately a spirit of fear. We fear that if we give the way God tells us to give, that we're, we're, we're not going to have enough, we're not going to have what we need. That's a fear that's a, that's a, that's a, a man-driven, humankind-driven fear, and it's not healthy. The fear of the Lord is something completely different. The fear of the Lord is not a fear of dread. It's a fear of respect. In fact, I've defined the fear of the Lord over the course of time as this, a dedicated awareness of just how serious God takes himself and how serious we ought to take him. That's the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is not dread. The fear of the Lord is respect. It's honor. It's it's wrapping our lives around the life of God. That's the fear of the Lord when we read it in Scripture. You want proof that it's not dread? This was great. I was just looking at, at one of my friends on their, on their social media this week. He quoted Psalm 130, chapter, or 130, verse 4. Psalm 130, verse 4 says, In forgiveness we learn the fear of the Lord. In forgiveness we learn the fear of the Lord. So we learn to fear God when he forgives us? Hold on a minute. All I'm trying to say is this fear is not a fear of dread. It's not a fear of worry or anxiety. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom because we wrap our lives around the creator. We wrap our lives around the one who created us with a purpose. And we say, God, your salvific purpose in this world is true and it's real and it's important. And what you're doing in this world is serious. And I'm going to be serious about it. That's the fear of the Lord. In giving of these tithes and offerings and sacrifices, people have the opportunity to learn the fear of the Lord your God always. That we would always be present with the Lord when we give of our tithes and our offerings. The second thing that this does is it's a response. God allows this system of giving because it's a response to what God has done. Turn back a page, 12-7. It says, and there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, and all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Look at the word rejoice. When these people are bringing their sacrifices, their tithes, their offerings, their free will offerings to the Lord, it's a time to celebrate. In fact, God was so cool, he allowed the people to partake in the celebration. You were able to bring the feast, if you will, to the temple, and then you got to participate in that. Isn't that cool? You got to be part of that with God. It was communion, if you will, with God, even in this ancient time. But they're responding in all that they have undertaken that the Lord has blessed them. It's a response. It's a a joyous response. So God calls people to give that they may learn the fear of the Lord, but he also calls people to give that they would learn to rejoice and praise him. It's an act of worship. It's an act of worship. Many years ago when I was a kid, my father, he was the founding pastor of this church. We went on vacation. And when we went on vacation, one of our elders preached, and he preached on this concept that giving towards the things of God is an act of worship and a time to rejoice. That's what he preached on. We didn't know this. 
So we came back the very next Sunday, or maybe two Sundays from then, and we all we sat down, and my dad uh, got up on, uh, on the platform, and he, he looked out, and he said, all right, I'm going to call upon our ushers for the tithes and offerings. And you know what happened? People started cheering, and they started clapping, and they started hooting and hollering, because it's a church, amen, right? And, 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 and five skiff dads went, what is going on here? What was happening? Uh, the folks here at Victory Life, probably 20-some years ago, recognized that giving towards the work of God is a moment to rejoice and respond because of what God has done in their lives. It's a time to rejoice. It's awesome. It's great to be able to thank the Lord. Now, over the course of years, people kept clapping every time we'd say, it's time to receive our tithes and offerings, and the clapping would start. And there were people clapping that were not there for that message. They had no idea why we were clapping. <laughs> In essence, they just thought that we were a clapping church. You announce anything, you begin to clap, right? Sister so-and-so has gone to be with the Lord. <laughs> no, you know. So... They just thought they were the clapping church, but, but the origin of that was so sweet and so pure, and it was so neat to come back, and people recognized, hey, I'm not giving because I'm upset. I'm not giving because I'm, I'm mad. I'm not giving because, oh, God, I just have to give to you today because you called me to do so in your word. They were celebrating. It's an act of worship. It's not an act of reluctance. It's an act of joy. It's an act of joy. That's another reason why God's instituted giving. And then finally, just here from, from chapter 12 and chapter 14, if you want to turn over the page to 1419, where there's the reiteration of these promises, it's an expectation. It's a moment to expect from the Lord. Look at 1429, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. There's an expectation that if we entrust what God has given us back to him, that he will continue to take care of us. Are you catching this? There's an expectation that if you give to God back out of what he's given to you, this reciprocal thing will happen, and the Lord will bless you in all the work that your hands, in some translations, choose to do. It's learning to trust that God's going to take care of you. A couple of years ago, uh, one of the leaders of our men's ministry, Kenny Spiegelmeyer, and I had the opportunity to meet with a church consultant, and he was consulting us on building a men's ministry. He contacted us. He, he set the meets. He gave us all of this wealth of information, and he was pouring into us at no cost. It was the neatest thing. Now, he was a retired person. I'm not going to tell you his, his profession, but he was a retired person, and this is what he was doing as his second career, except he was doing it pro bono. He wasn't being paid. He was contacting churches like ours and saying, hey, we have wonderful research on how to make men's ministry vibrant. W w would you like to learn about that research? And we met with this guy over the course of like a year, and, and, and we'd meet him for breakfast, or he'd come into the office, and, and he would pursue us, and every time that we either went to breakfast with him or he came into the office, he either paid or brought treats. I loved this guy. <laughs> I, I love him still. I wish he would set more meetings with me. Anyhow, he was pouring into us and pouring into us and pouring into us, and every time that he would pay for breakfast, every time he'd bring treats to the office staff, I would say, you don't have to do that. Stop. He goes, I have to do this. I said, why? He says, I work for the king. I work for the king. 
Now, I'm not going to tell you his profession, but I will say from the profession that he retired, he was not a wealthy man. And, and, and at the bottom line of his budget, I'm sure at one point he could have looked at all the times that he, he, he brought uh, pastries or, 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 or paid for lunch with area pastors that, that he thought, boy, if I just stopped that, what could I do? But for him, that, 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 that small act of generosity on top of the time that he was already given was a moment to say, I trust God. I'm not worried about lunch. I'm not worried about breakfast. I'm not worried about what I brought your office staff. He was a neat guy. I preach this message to you today out of a full heart because I believe that God desires for us to embrace the, that kind of trust. You say, well, that wasn't a huge amount of trust. Well, that was, that was a substantial amount of trust because of the pattern that he'd set up in his life, and I know all the meetings that that guy had. But that was his way to say, I work for the king, and I want to bless these pastors and these churches. God wants us to embrace trust. I want to take you to one more passage today. It's perhaps one of the most famous passages on giving of tithes and offerings. It's in Malachi chapter 3. And this is, this is the uh, passage of Scripture that pastors take their congregations to most in order to just lay the hammer down on them when it, when it comes to giving. But I'm going to focus on a different part of this passage today because I'm not interested in laying the hammer down on anybody. It's not my heart. It's not the way I operate. It's not the way this church operates. But in Malachi chapter 3, we're going to see a promise. And I want us to focus on the promise today because God wants us to embrace a trusting relationship with him whereby... He takes care of us as we give into the things that he calls us to give into. You in Malachi chapter 3, verse 7 and following. The prophet Malachi, speaking for the Lord, says in verse 7, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions. You're cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Now this is a very, very interesting passage. Now the concept of tithes and offerings, they go all the way back to Genesis chapter 14 where Abraham tithes to Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, the, or the priest of peace, or I'm sorry, the priest of righteousness, the king of peace. I'm going to get that right one of these days. Anyhow, all the way back to that, but this is the last time in the Old Testament that these tithes and these offerings are mentioned. The Israelite children have been sent into exile in Babylon. They have come back to the land. God has taken care of them for two millennia. And there's a problem because the folks are taking in the wealth that they are acquiring and they are not giving back into the ministry of God. And God's upset. And he wants to use the prophet Malachi to share that upset. But what's so cool about God is the upset is not the end of the story. 
the upset is the beginning of the story, the end of the story is a promise. It's a promise. Yes, God's upset with his people for not giving into his work, but he says, but listen, I want you to engage in this level of giving because it's a test. Not a test for you, but a test for me. I'd like you to put me to the test. I would like you to see if you will start giving the way I have called you to, if I will not take care of your every need. Now, there are many people who would argue that the system of giving and the tithes and the contributions that the Old Testament describes, they would say, well, that's outdated because that's the law. Now, that's not where I'm at. I don't think a day of rest is outdated, but that's in the law. I don't think, you know, prescriptions against adultery are outdated, but that's in the law. And I think bringing tithes and offerings to the Lord is is part of the law, but it's, it's part of who we should be today. Not only because the tithe was before the law with Abraham, but, but Jesus affirms the tithe in Matthew 23, 23. Hebrews chapter 7 that they'll be studying in a few weeks on Wednesday night says, in essence, when you give your tithe, you're sort of giving it to the one who we claim he lives. Now, there's all these reasons to believe in, in that concept, but, but I don't want to focus on the law today. I want to focus on the promise. And the promise is God telling his people, I want you to test me in this to see if I'll take care of you, to see if I'll hold up my end of the deal. Because the nature of our life with God is supposed to go something like this. God takes care of us. We trust him with what he's given. God takes care of us. God takes care of us. We trust him with what he's given. God takes care of us. The righteous shall live by faith. That's the whole concept of, of these three weeks that we're going to talk about here, of, of being agents of God's treasury. That, that God gives us so much in this life. We are in one of the richest nations on earth. We, we, our, 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 I've said this before, our poor people have smartphones. To whom much is given, much is required. God has given us such an abundance and he's looking for us to put him to the test with what he's given us. Will we trust him and say, I'm an agent of God's treasury. I work for the king. And if you come out with nothing else from this series of three short messages, it's this. Either your money is submitted to God or you are submitted to your money. But I want to tell you, only one of those clauses comes with a promise. If your money is submitted to God, he says, I will take care of you. Look at verse 10. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing. Catch the last moment until there is no more need. Now, some pastors and some churches read that a little differently. It says, pour down a blessing until you have your Cadillac. Pour down for you a blessing until you've got a six or seven figure income. Pour down for you a blessing until the pastor's 401k is fully stocked. 
I want to tell you today, and, and some people would say, why are you doing church business in the middle of a church service? I mean, you talked about electing trustees today. Well, we elect trustees because eight of your peers decide how we steward the finances of this church. Praise God for that. Do you realize that there are churches out there that the board of trustees is comprised of the pastor, his wife, and his brother-in-law? They're out there. And they can do whatever it is that comes in to the treasury of, of their church. Here at Victory Life, there are eight of your peers who decide how the money is stewarded. But to get away from abuse and back to the promise, God says, until there is, say it with me, no more need. He didn't promise a, a, a Cadillac. He didn't promise that you'd just get rich like some people are out there preaching. He promises that he will take care of you. That's what he promises. If the idea is I give to get, we're still infected with the spirit of mine, are we not? But if we give to trust and to test, we are in the right because God says, go ahead and test me. And what else does he say? I'll rebuke the devourer for you. I'm going to take care of your stuff. And finally, I'll make sure that the work of your hands bear fruit. Now, there's lots of people that say, well, the law is abolished, Pastor Matt, but in the same breath they'd say, but the promises of God are forever. And I want to tell you today, the promises of God are forever. And he wants to take care of you. I want to just share one last thing with you today before we close, and it's a, it's a moment where somebody came into this church two years ago. They were part of our church body, but they came to me, and they said, I, had to t I have to tell you a story, Pastor Matt. I said, go ahead. He told me this story, and I've sat on it for probably over two years. And so this week, I went back, or I guess it was last week, and I said, would you write that out for me? It might apply to where we're at. Uh, as a church, and I'd, I'd love to share that with the church. And he said, let me go home, talk to my wife, make sure that's okay, and I'll get back to you. And this is what he sent me. I want to read it to you today, and then we'll close. This is what he wrote. He said, it was December, and as a large family, money was tight. Christmas had come and gone, and the bills had began to show up. After my wife and I looked over the checkbook, there just wasn't enough money to go around. So in our ultimate wisdom, we decided to hold our tithe check that week and put in two the next week. The next week came, and there still wasn't enough, so we decided to make it up at the end of the month. Then the end of the month came, and we decided that we'd make it up with our tax return. And then the tax return came, and we decided it was ours. Now, we were doing a lot of ministry at the church, says this gentleman, and at that time, we'd convinced ourselves that the time and money we were investing in ministry was our tithe, our giving to God. After all, if you look at what we both made professionally on an hourly basis and then applied it to the time we spent doing ministry, the church was getting quite the deal. We lived in that mindset for about a year. And I want to tell you, our family did not go hungry. We always had a roof over our heads, but money was tight. And stress was high. So finally I went to the Lord, quite angry I might add, and I asked him, what's going on? Why are we suffering? Why are my wife and I constantly quarreling? Why is there no peace in my home? As I was sitting there in my chair, God answered me very quietly and calmly. He said, you broke your end of the deal. I said, how did I break our deal, Lord? 
I minister. I tell people about your son. How did I break our deal? And the Lord answered very plainly. Now catch this. You stop trusting me. You stop trusting me. Instead of trusting me with what I've given you, you kept it to yourself. I love what this guy said. I'd been spanked. I went to my wife and I explained the conversation I had with the Lord and we decided it was time to repent and hold up our end of the deal. We started to give our tithe again and still did the same amount of ministry. And God held up his end of the deal. Before I read you the rest of this, I want you to notice what he actually says. No one shows up the next day with a bag full of money on his front porch, okay? It's a different concept, but Catch the time frame here. He said, within the next six months, my wife received a promotion, which included a raise. And then she was given a raise on top of that, which was higher than the company average. As for myself, I received a promotion, a bonus that was 3% over the maximum for my company. And I received a raise for the first time in five years. God kept his end of the deal. And before I decided to include Malachi 3 in this message today, this guy wrote Malachi 3 on the bottom of his email. And I thought, that's it right there. That's it right there. Nobody showed up with a check for $100,000. The ghost of Ed McMahon did not come to his house. But God, at least in his life, wanted to say, I have got you so long as you trust me. You know why Jesus didn't stop that woman? He was not going to rob her of her moment with God. He refused to rob that woman of another moment of going, God has supplied. That's why he didn't stop her. My guess is, is that woman had jumped into the pool into her father's arms again and again and again and again. And she was positive. Two copper pennies did not stand between her and drowning. Positive. Positive. So today, I just want to ask you, are you having enough trust in the Lord right now to jump into the pool? He'll catch you. He'll show himself strong on your behalf. And you'll be the beneficiary of that jump. You'll start having the time of your life because you've trusted him. I don't promise he does. Would you bow your heads? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, there are so many things that we would love to see be the case in the lives of your people. But I think boiled down to the core of our relationship 
is the concept that you are most glorified when your people say over and over and over again, I trust you, 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 I trust you. And God, if there are those among us today that so desperately want to trust in this aspect of our life for the first time, or maybe for the first time in a long time, that we would not worry about what you're going to do to us for years of not trusting. After all, you said that we'll learn the fear of the Lord by forgiveness. But Lord, I pray that we would take this moment where we're truly affected by your word and your promises to say, God, I'm going to trust you. You take care of me now. I'll give what you tell me to give take care of me later and in the meantime I'll learn about who you truly are and how much you truly care and how much you'll take care of me if today you're sitting in this place and that's you you know that you need to jump into the pool either first time or first time long time and you need to pray about that today and you need to be serious about that today I'm going to ask you as just as an act of your will to just raise a hand towards the Lord raise a hand towards heaven I am purposely looking at the back wall because this is between you and God but I can see those hands being lifted don't know who you are, but thank God for your honesty today. Thank God for your honesty. He wants to meet you. He wants to prove himself to you. He wants you closer to him than you've ever been before because you chose to trust him. And in lieu of having our normal prayer time today, I'm just going to have everybody in this congregation turn two hands palm towards heaven today just as a sign that everything we have is the Lord's and everything we receive is his Heavenly Father I thank you for those whose hearts you have touched today I thank you God that you want to take care of them I thank you God that they have not gone hungry ever that here they are sitting here this morning taken care of but I thank you God that they want more of their relationship with you. They want to submit this area of their lives to you and they want to give you what is rightfully yours. Not because you need it, but because they need to trust you. God, I pray that this would not just be an emotional decision today. I pray that it would be a decision of the volition that comes deep from the heart. And that, God, they would begin to live as an agent of your treasury, loading up, going out, 
and dispersing as you have called them to do. I thank you, Lord, that you have supplied every one of our needs according to your riches and glory. And I thank you, Lord, that you have never failed us before. And we trust that you will never fail us in the future. We praise you, Lord, for your goodness and your provision in our lives. And we look forward, Lord, to seeing you do what only you can do again and again and again. In Jesus' name we pray, and everybody said, amen. Amen. Would you stand to your feet with us today?